0: Hello and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Welcome to today's episode of The Speech Life. I am Caitlin Lopez, a pediatric SLP based in Southern California, and I am so excited to have the fabulous Jennifer Grey with us today. If you haven't taken any of her courses on speechtherapypd.com, I highly, highly recommend them, and I'm just I'm stoked that she's agreed to spend this hour with us. Before we begin, just a few housekeeping items. The first being at the conclusion of today's course, please remember to log into your course portal on speechtherapypd.com and complete all modules, especially the module entitled quiz, so that you can get your live CEUs for today. So now I will read our disclosure statements and get those out of the way before we begin. I'm Caitlin Lopez, like I said, the host of this Speech Life podcast. I do receive compensation for this episode and I have no non-financial relationships to report. Jennifer Gray is self-employed at Connected Speech LLC and Gray's Peak Speech Services LLC. She's also a trainer for LSBT Loud, and she receives an honorarium for joining us today on this episode. She has no relevant non-financial relationships to report either. All right, so if you don't know Jennifer, I am so excited to introduce her to all of you. She is a certified speech language pathologist with 20 years of experience treating those with speech language and feeding delays and disorders. She's spent the last 12 plus of those years specializing in communication and feeding for those with the intellectual disabilities and motor speech disorders. She owns and operates companies offering consulting and direct services, including early intervention and private practice For infants, children, teens, and adults through traditional and telepractice teletherapy settings. Her experience working in universities, public schools, private practice, and early intervention settings has led her to seek more effective therapeutic approaches for young children with moderate to severe intellectual and motor speech needs. She currently trains therapists, caretakers, and educators to use methods that work teaching courses and speaking at local, state, and national conventions. Jennifer Grey continues to seek and develop innovative and evidence-based practices to ensure functional outcomes for educational, social, and independent living success. Like I said, I'm just really excited that she's here. I think a lot of us, you know, we we get a lot of courses that are autism based, or we get a lot of courses that are speech sound disorder based, but not quite focusing on our kids with down syndrome. And we do have enough of them that we should on our case lives that we should be learning specifically what works best for this population and Focusing on their strengths and how to build on that so Jennifer I like I I just keep saying it i'm excited you're here because it's the truth. All right, Jennifer so why don't we just dive right in what are three things that we need to know when it comes to planning therapy for our students with down syndrome.
1: Oh, it's really hard for me to pick three things, but I am very happy to be here, so I, I talk about this all the time. If you hear my computer ding, I think I don't know how to turn off the alerts, so I, pro- I apologize for getting emails. So I picked three really kind of broad categories based on what I've learned from educators, SLPs, and families in school settings, which is really kids with Down syndrome learn differently. And so how you know if we need to know that and we need to know how what that difference looks like. Otherwise, we just keep chasing our tails. And I think that that's kind of where most of us end up with Down syndrome is what part do I focus on in an IEP when there's just so much there? Right. And we hear some things from parents like, you know, PT and OT, they're very concrete. But what we do is all of cognition. So that piece of it, how do we do all of that when we're supposed to be able to focus and how do we do that with a large caseload? How do we do that in groups? How do we do that in one-on-one settings when we're looking at inclusion? And so those three things that I've kind of picked is how do they learn? How do we really look at speech clarity? And then another one that I think is glaring, but we don't talk about it enough as its own entity is answering questions and possibly asking them back right so those three things i think if we have just a foundation with those three things we can make those choices that slps need to make in schools a little bit easier and then on the flip side helping parents know even what to ask for or how to work together in harmony because it seems like we're always on opposite sides, that there's a little bit of fighting going on every time there's an IEP. I keep my eyes pretty close to parent boards and things when there's so many discussions about inclusion, how that's supposed to work. And I will never pretend that I know those answers. It's so complex, but I really do hope that we can get closer to partnering with families a little bit better and then helping families in the opposite respect, Hey this is what we can expect from our school SLPs, because they don't have a lot of time. So dosage is something I talk about a lot. If we have time to kind of get into that, being a school SLP probably isn't enough for one child. And so those are the three that we'll kind of talk about today, I think.
0: All right, that sounds great. So how do kids with Down syndrome learn?
1: So if we look at some of the research that's been around for a long time, and some newer research that's kind of coming out of the UK is, kids are starting to learn about speech and interaction and taking turns in speech as early as three months old. And so if we think about what a baby and a, and a toddler is going through at that age that has Down syndrome, we might be looking at hearing, being hospitalized and going through surgeries for heart or other things going on medically that really that first year life, there's a good chance that there were a lot of things not going well that can interfere with that typical development so even by the time we're, we're seeing an 11 month old for example we might already be behind just because of hearing vision interaction any of those other things that are making it difficult for a child to do what they would naturally do in development what does that end up looking like by the time we are in kindergarten, right? Did we get all those things in time? And what we're finding is if if we aren't talking back to other people, if we aren't participating in at least trying to make sound and trying to babble and trying to talk, that it puts us even further behind in language skills, language development, thought, and behavior. Because how do we know how to behave if we don't have the language to interact, either telling people what we need or understanding what other people need of us? And so when we really start to unpack it, it's really scary at first. It feels like a snowball. So we have all these things, and by the time we're looking at a at a three year old to a five year old, we're like, "Oh my gosh, you know, look at all these things that have happened in that period of time." And I think we forget about that in the schools what has that done to how this child has learned how to learn right and so there's an article that came out a while ago and it's in the handout if people want it but the author called it learning the hard way our kids from the very beginning with down syndrome they're learning the hard way and if you're learning like that if you're learning in a less than optimal situation you're also going to have a lot of failures in that cycle right so i'm going to try something it doesn't work I'm gonna try it again, still doesn't work. Try it again, and now I'm gonna stop trying, right? The second I think that maybe something is difficult for me, I'm out of here, right? So we have eloping and we have fleeing, or we have sitting on the floor, we have opting out, we have all these lovely words to explain these behaviors and we treat them as behaviors instead of, gosh, how can we stop this behavior so that we can actually promote learning? And if you don't know, that's what it is you're going to simply attack the behavior so we can have a beautiful three-year-old who goes into kindergarten at five and when when this was first starting to happen to me professionally i was like what is going on you know we had all this set it was great we we had all these skills and then it didn't keep right and so the other way that they learn or the other ways that they are different than Other learners is that they have to keep learning. They have to master things, and that takes longer. We know that development follows the exact same trajectory for those with Down syndrome. It just takes longer. And so we tend to forget that. So we kind of start looking at the behaviors rather than looking at, okay, what should they have learned? Why are they acting this way? And maybe I should change my approach based on how they learn. So that's kind of the big foundation, not a great answer to that question, but how do they learn? If you have hearing issues from the time you're born, and we know that that's pretty much always the case, sometimes it comes and goes, we don't really know. We're gonna be visual learners over auditory learners, and the world is definitely going more that direction now, so I don't have to talk about that as much anymore, where you know we're all kind of visual learners now. But they need that and they keep needing it and they need practice. They need tons of practice in everything, but specifically with speech. So if we have a child that's really delayed and even starting to make sound and make sound purposely and trying to talk while they're also doing all of these other things that they should do with language at three years old we end up kind of taking that speech piece out right we're really good at language we're not great at speech we think of speech we think of our tick and what has happened is we're going after a lot of this receptive language but they tend to be very good at we think we have to build their vocabulary we have to enrich their environments well that's true they're kind of already good at that what they need practice and help with is using it how do i use these The vocabulary I've learned. They're actually really good at vocabulary learning. They pick up new words really easily. And so it's that using it. It's that putting that syntax, that grammar, that working memory, that executive functioning piece. We're not good at that yet in terms of working on it because we just sort of expect it to come. And that doesn't always happen with this group. They don't just talk. And when I, when I had my own children who were typically developing, it was I kind of had to learn backwards because I was like, wow, you just you just did that, <laughs> right? No one taught you to do that. You just did it. It was very strange for me <laughs> to kind of watch because that isn't quite what we're dealing with with this population. And so a lot of times we either quit what we're doing too early or we feel like we have to get closer and closer to those milestones that we're told about, especially in the school system, that we may not have the foundation of executive functioning skills of working memory to remember not only to say that sound right that word right but that phrase right and to remember the questions that i can answer it and then work on my speech and then use the right language structures to answer the question and the amount of time there if you're a bit slower doing those things all together sometimes it just doesn't come because we haven't really presented it in the way that they learn so but knowing this i have found actually helps us simply knowing it not even research don't go home and do research on this just simply knowing that helps you rethink the situation that you're kind of staring at when you're in a session with a child like okay this didn't work okay maybe i need to think about this again like maybe worksheets aren't the best strategy for this child? What else could we use? And those are some of the strategies that i put in that handout as well. Big answer. Sorry.
0: No, I think that's great. You know, it's so true that We sometimes, especially in the school system, you know, if we're working with an older student that might be in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, we forget about those early years, you know, when we're doing our assessments, we're not, we're not necessarily thinking about that early intake of, okay, how often were there ear infections, you know, how did they have tubes put in their ears, those kinds of questions we don't necessarily ask at that age, but that still has an impact at that age. And so I really I really appreciate that you thought about that or that you brought that up because I've been super guilty of that, you know, and thinking, thinking more holistically about our kids with Down syndrome other than we know they have heart issues, right? So I think, and then also what does that mean that they have heart issues? I really found that helpful too, to think about, well, how often, you know, how long were they in the NICU? how long were they in the hospital after their heart surgery and i found that super valuable to be thinking about when it comes to our our students and then that piece about our students being visual learners i think is really important to remember which goes back to exactly what the points you made of like okay let's think about this kid as a whole and not just the behaviors they're showing and instead of thinking as our kids as behavior problems like What's my piece to play in that? I think that's such a huge, huge thing for us to reflect on as therapists, for all of our students that might be presenting with behavior problems. But I I know that I've heard it several times in my career of, oh, well, he's just stubborn. He has Down syndrome. Um, right.
1: Yeah, when I was in the schools, that was kind of, it was really common to say that. And then it was also shunned for a while. We weren't supposed to say that. And then later in my career, I learned about phenotypes and I was like, ah, thank you, God, because it was, yes, this actually is a phenotype, meaning this is a common enough trait, if you will, of people with Down syndrome that we can actually talk about it. And that's what we're calling that language learning difference, right? That, that need to avoid a situation when you don't really have to, that learning the hard way, that adaptive skill that they used back then that worked, guess what? Now it's hurting us. And those phenotypes, one of which the stubbornness, right? Why won't they do this? They just did it. Why won't they do it again? And I think that's kind of been almost, I think, kind of a, we label them before we even meet them because, okay, we got a child with Down syndrome and there's that, right? So we might automatically put them in that category. And that's not completely wrong, But I think we need to know why that is a little bit, even though we don't really know. But how can we get around that? And those are some of those strategies, like how, okay, we know that's there. Instead of just saying, you know, I'm kind of leaving it there. Are there ways that we can reduce that? And those are some of the things that I've had to find kind of on my own, mostly with parents saying, you know what? When he does this, I do this. And I'm like, oh gosh, of course I'm brilliant, right? And so I've tried to kind of combine that parent insight with what I'm actually observing, you know, in, in the therapy room or in a classroom. And I don't think we get that chance as much in the schools. And we tend to have this us, them, coral. Mom says he does this all the time at home, but I never see it. So I'm not really sure that that's actually true, right? that's right very common right i don't see what mom sees but we also have a lot of research that says mom's probably right right and so how do we bridge that so that you know we both kind of win but you but the therapist also can end up in a place where they can have strategies to deal with that trait because it is there so There's a lot of those and even kind of, you know, thinking about the hearing in the heart, there's a lot of other medical conditions that keep going on like GI distress, right? I can't tell you how many times I've been wrong because a child is in constant GI distress and the behaviors that we're looking at were pain behaviors, trying to get out of something because they don't feel well or sleep. We know that most people with syndrome have sleep apnea and we have to make sure that that's been addressed. Otherwise we're looking at behaviors that resemble autism when we've made those mistakes in the past with this group. So knowing those medical things really kind of helps us in the classroom. Hey, I wonder if he slept last night. I wonder if his tummy hurts. And I have had a lot of those experiences where sure enough, you know, I'll be with a parent and be like, I don't know, something's off today. And then I get a call two hours later. Sure enough, they threw up or, you know, some GI stuff is kind of revealed. And so knowing that, You know, behavior is communication most of the time, not all the time, especially with this this group. It's tough, but also having that skill to know, hey, we might want to dig around and see why this behavior is occurring.
0: Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. Thank you for your insight. We just had a quick question about, we have a handout. It's not on the website, but what you can do is you can email me. I'll pop it in the chat at this.speech.life at gmail.com. And I will make sure to email it to you if you request it and I'll pop that. I'll pop my email in the chat as well, but this dot life at gmail.com. And I'll make sure that anyone who wants it can have access to it. I think that will be the easiest way to do that. All right. Thank you for your insights just on learning style alone. I think that's very helpful and I'm really excited about your next thing that we need to know about when we're planning for our therapy, and that is speech clarity. I know that that is something that is a tough one for us when we are working with our kids with Down syndrome.
1: Yes, and it's kind of become pretty much all I do. You know, I used to do, I kind of came to Down syndrome. People always ask what my story is, and it's really boring. It just, I worked in a place where we had a lot of people with Down syndrome, and I was learning about, I came from the stuttering world. And then, you know, that's obviously full circle now, but I kind of started looking at movement of the mouth and what we need for feeding and speech. And so who was coming to us? People with Down syndrome, people with cerebral palsy, people with autism, childhood apraxia, speech was new. And so we were looking at movement and it was very intriguing to me. And so that's how I kind of started with Down syndrome. And when I, because I came from that speech world, and more I was doing that on my own in private practice, I was like, man, this is the only thing parents are really concerned about on a consistent basis. No one understands what they can say, except me, if it was a mom, usually. And, and they would tell me what, you know, they have worked on in the past, but they're getting in, in speech at school or in other private services. And nobody was doing speech at all. Really, it was a couple sound things. Oh, we're working on R. Common. Okay, um, we do some letters parents would tell me sounds, or they were doing a lot of language, which is all great, but nobody really is attacking that speech clarity when you think about an adult with with down syndrome. What do you hear what do you see in your mind it's usually something to do with the way they sound right, and so I really just had to kind of be self taught and figure this out on my own, taking a bunch from people in you know different areas of our field, outside of our field, and kind of have developed some things that really just expand on things that we do for other children. But it really isn't sounds. You can work on sounds, but you shouldn't work on it too much <laughs> because that's not really the problem. The problem is movement. Children with Down syndrome have dysarthria, all of them. <laughs> We don't like to talk about that. They have hypotonia. They can't move as quickly and as agile I'm <laughs> the agility, but they, they don't have the agility and the endurance and the speed because of that dysarthria. So if you think of speech as movement, of course, that's what's gonna happen. But in addition to that movement, we also have high palate and a very small nasal passage for the same reason and very small ear canals. Which leads to a lot of the hearing. So any allergy, any cold can immediately affect resonance, right? So that we kind of always oh, have a cold. We have lax ligaments in addition to lax muscles. And so the joints here. So your jaw, obviously, TMJ, it's a joint, it's lax. So now we have jaws that are usually too low, tongues that are sticking out too forward mouth breathers because their nose is always stuffy and here's that snowball again right so it's not just the sounds they could be making those place and contact areas of speech perfectly but that manner of speech probably always going to be somewhat distorted so you don't notice it as much when they're younger because we're talking in very low mlus one two three words at a time, but when we start getting smarter and we have more language and we start saying more and we start talking faster like I am today and telling you a lot of things, we don't have that system that can keep up, right? And so we tend to think of MLU, gosh, it's a language problem. We need more words at a time probably, but it's also part of executive functioning and it's a movement issue. It takes me a lot more effort to say that in the same space of time than, it, than you take to say that in the same space of time. And so really looking at speech clarity as an issue of voice, resonance, and movement really changed everything I did because I would stare at these kids, and I would record them, and then I would stare at them in my in my spare time, and I would listen with you know the sound on, and then I would turn the sound off what is it that's disturbing this signal and it really had a lot to do with voice in terms of is your voice at the optimal pitch right normal voice stuff how is resonant resonance affecting that are they putting syllable stresses in the right spots they don't by the way so there was all these neat little things that I was not neat but all of these kind of secondary voice characteristics that we kind of lay on top of speech, right? But don't think about very much. Those tend to be the things that are disrupting this signal. And so that's why working on sounds alone doesn't work because they usually are saying the sound's okay for the most part, especially to get into the teenage years. It's rarely a sound problem. It's more of a resonance issue, a movement issue, and then learned behavior issues i can't say that or i can't answer that question so i'm just going to say one or two words and if my working memory is poor gosh i'm probably not going to be able to say a five word sentence every time i talk because the cognitive load of that is too hard and so really just bending our (laughs) bending our knowledge enough to kind of go oh gosh this is a bigger thing than i thought it was this isn't this isn't just speech right this is huge And it doesn't stop. This is something that's from when they're little to adulthood because you're gonna get (laughs) colds. Your system is going to go through things. Puberty, for example, things get really weird when you have all of these differences physiologically. And so we really do have to think about people with Down syndrome really in kind of their special category, but also realizing that that category has about a thousand categories inside of it. And I think that skills people, but I hope that by talking about this more, it doesn't really, for me, selfishly, it unlocked doors. And so once I was in a place where I could go, gosh, what is that? And then I kept doing that. And then I would do research or I would talk to people. i call people, I'd email people, people, doctors, other you know, professions and be like, gosh, what is this? That's when I started to kind of develop techniques that worked because we were finally looking at the thing that was causing the issue. So again, not to scare listeners, like you don't have to do all this right away. I've been doing this for a long time. And that's what I'm trying to do now is lay it out for people so that you can quickly reference some of these things so you can help that student on your caseload because most of you don't have caseloads just with Down syndrome like I do. And so how trying to make all of this, that's hard to find right now, easier to find, And that's what I'm hoping to do with podcasts and more speaking, putting handouts like this out there, putting resources like this out there for therapists, teachers, parents, so that we can understand this snowball a little bit more so that we can look at speech clarity, but also the whole person, and then understanding that this isn't something that goes away when you're eight, like we think of with speech sound disorders, for example. So this might be an ongoing thing and knowing that we have to be patient for a long time.
0: Thank you. I, you know, you really just blew my mind, to be honest. That is for sure the missing piece of, oh my goodness, why didn't I think of those things? Oh my goodness, <laughs> she's so right. Oh my goodness, I'm an idiot, right? Like, <laughs> but when you know better, you do better. Um, oh, and I do
1: that every day. I'm like, how do you
0: Yeah, and especially in our field, I feel like, you know, there's always constant new research, but I absolutely loved what you said about just really breaking down the speech mechanism and all the pieces that we need in the speech mechanism and every single one is impacted in our kids with Down syndrome. And of course, working on a single sound is not going to work. Of course, working on phonological processes is not going to work it might be helpful. Those phonological processes might be helpful, you know, for our younger students, but once they are in elementary and junior high, so thank you. You just really, you unlocked doors for me and I'm so excited. And so like, I have a game plan now and I'm I'm really excited. So thank you, Jennifer, for just that little bit. It's like, I'm so excited. This is why <laughs> I was excited to have you on the show. Okay. I always learn something new. From you every time I take a course, so thank you for that. That that was really eye-opening to me of the way you broke that down. You know, and, and there's I, so
1: much to it too. Yeah. It's hard for me to do it in a, a short amount of time, but it, that's what I'm hoping that the reaction that you have is what I can instill in other people is because that's what it does for me. It doesn't make me sad or worried. If I get very revved up about it. and get very excited because I know, hey. Gosh, now I have a path at least that I can explore. And then we can and really I think keep thinking I have to write a book called, I don't know, try it. Uh, Because we don't, we just don't know. There's a lot we don't know. But there's a lot we have to try. And I think a lot of therapists are very scared to do that, right? With evidence-based practice and that being such a, a big focus of what we do, we're scared to try. We're scared to wonder where that curiosity is kind of taken a back seat to the IEP goals that we're supposed to use, right? Or WH questions, for example, when we're looking at answering questions, which is one of those things I can talk about, but it's not WH questions at all. It's questions. <laughs> and it's answering questions and it's asking questions, right? These are big, big categories. And for me, that really makes things exciting <laughs> because, hey, this is, this is why it hasn't worked for me. This is why it hasn't worked for the student, and I think it hopefully it gives us a place to go, knowing that we have still a lot to learn, and we have a lot to learn from each other. That you know, it's so we have we're having a conversation about kind of being on your own in practice, which I was for a long time, which worked, but you really need those other people to say, "Hey, this is what I'm seeing. What in the world is this?" And being able to ask that question in the first place, <laughs> to say, "Gosh." I just, I'm not finding any, I'm missing something here. And those conversations open doors and they make it much easier for us to problem solve when we're working with a student or a group of students.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. All right, I mean, you started to touch on it. So let's just jump into your third point of what we need to think about when it comes to answering and asking questions.
1: Yeah, this is still the biggest thorn in my side right now, I think and I don't have any great insights other than to tell you that this is a problem. This is a very, very, very big problem. Our kids struggle answering questions. And I think it's for all the reasons we already talked about when they're little, but it's also the way our culture interacts with children, right? What do you wanna be when you grow up? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you? You know, we, We ask questions while we teach. And that may not be the best approach, really for anyone, but I teach this and then I go into a session and I ask questions, right? I mean, it's so hard to break, but I've had some really interesting cases in the last few years that have really just kind of knocked me down. Like, gosh, this is nuts. I can't get a single question answered accurately. Even hi, what's your name can be tough for someone to answer and why is that? And here's what I found, the big answer is, it has nothing to do with their knowledge at all. It has to do with everything else that's going on when you ask the question. So for some kids, simply asking a question causes them to shut down. Because they're like, you know what? I'm gonna get it wrong. So I'm gonna be silly here. I'm gonna pretend like I didn't hear you. I'm gonna run away, whatever it is. All the way to, I'm gonna guess. (laughs) Or I'm gonna look for something in my environment to answer with that's visual. So one of my favorite examples, if you've heard this so many times, sorry, but is I was in a session session, and I was having a great session and the child and I were going back and forth. And we were talking all about this birthday party we went to the weekend, and it was wonderful. And I talked to mom afterwards. And because she had I was doing this at a kind of a babysitter after school. So mom came over. And I'm telling her all about it. And she's like, we didn't go to a birthday party over the weekend and I was like what but there was chocolate cake and one kid got a ball and you know I had all his information and I was like what in the world just happened well he was following me you know we were talking about I think we had probably a puzzle or something with a cake or a balloon on it and then it kind of blossomed and I said oh have you been to a birthday party yeah and you know my face is really happy and animated and I led him to all the answers he gave me and he was so excited that I was into it and that I was happy with him and we had this wonderful time that he basically lied to me the whole time <laughs> and I say that being funny he didn't lie to me but it really kind of taught me again it's nothing to do with actual answers you know why did why did that happen all kids do that to some extent but this group tends to do that very very often so they either grab something that is in your face or that's in the environment a lot of time they'll guess or they'll pick something right away and it may not even be something that they're physically seeing I saw a video once recently and I can't show it because it's not mine But basically the the teacher pulls out a book and the child knows the book. And it was like a picture of a dog or something. And she goes, oh, you remember this book? It's about, you know, remember what this book? And he goes, tractor. And I was like, what in the world? And it's it's a dog. And he said, tractor. And then the teacher quickly answers back, oh, that was the book we did last week. This book is about dog. And I was like, oh my God, that's right. So it wasn't even something in the immediate environment. He remembered her in a book and he went to tractor and if you don't know that it's a very puzzling dog tractor gosh maybe we need to go back to labeling maybe he doesn't know the difference between a dog and a tractor he does (laughs) he very he knows exactly but that's not what that adaptive skill he he developed in a way that oh book tractor because in his head he saw the tractor of the book that they read last time. And so that photographic memory, if you will, is also kind of at play. So not only do I learn visually, I might remember visually, and I might remember contextually, which we all do. But that adaptive skill to either play off with my face, or play off a past experience, kind of betrays them as they get older. And so we kind of have to have those experiences and know that to go oh, gosh just you know because most of us would right there assume we have to do vocabulary building because he thought a dog was a tractor right and so <laughs> this answering question thing, it really is a problem and responding in that interaction right so as we're getting into the teen years and the older years we're realizing gosh we can't have a conversation and I think I've been looking at it wrong until recently where I was like, well, let me think about this. So if they're 13 and all we've done is really kind of quiz because that's what our culture does. Did we forget to teach them to ask back? We may have missed it. And I we may have just not even realized it because it normally happens within our culture. We don't usually have to teach it. But what we forget is they didn't learn to ask questions back. They're the one that gets asked almost all the time they're the one that has the issue that others have to attend to that we sort of forgot that they should attend to peers and so now we have a brand new issue when we get older like okay well friendships why are we not having friendships why is this so hard and we talk about social communication but it might even be bigger in the sense that gosh we forgot to teach that when they were younger and that's i think one of the reasons that inclusion is extremely important you know they see it and we think that that's enough because that's typical learning that tends to be how it goes but we know from autism that actually is the practice of that that is extremely important so not only do we have to practice listening and responding we have to practice asking and wanting or understanding why we should ask the question back and then not just be a rote greeting that we've practiced over and over so the question thing is much bigger than simply you know hi how are you what's your name but we got to have them ask it back and actually remember and listen to that answer so again i hate to kind of throw this all out there but i get nervous and i want to say everything i can in a sure amount of time so that at least you you know hearing this can go oh gosh just remember a little piece of that when you're looking at questions, and I think it does kind of open some doors, like, oh yeah, maybe there's a different game we should come up with for our group sessions to make him the questioner, make him the teacher, right? Peer models is another brilliant way in the schools to do that is to have a model that not only models, but interacts and and choosing how that can work in the classroom with that visual, but also, they do have a desire, like we know with autism, to be like their peers, even if it doesn't look like it sometimes. But how do we do all of that within a school setting so that inclusion can work better? That's just one little piece of (laughs) some tips that might help in the schools.
0: Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. Awesome. Thank you for that. I mean, you gave us a lot to think about when it comes to asking questions and answering questions and... Than them asking questions back, you know, I think that that's a huge piece that can be used with all of our students, but especially you know our students that are are in SDC classrooms that a lot of times. it's just that constant quizzing and we're not working a ton on that pure that pure relatability and that peer relationship and I remember. A few years ago, I was working in a classroom and the teacher had free play in the Friday afternoons, but it wasn't free play. It was, but she she had all of her classroom staff and then I would go in as well. I had a couple of students that had push in on their their, on their IEPs and I loved it. You know, we would go in and model and help with some of those peer relationships and that was super valuable, I think, for those students. And then we the students that were mainstreaming, they had a lot of great success with relating to their student to their fellow students as well. So I can see how that is something that we definitely need to do a lot more of. And this teacher was not a preschool teacher. We do see a lot of that free play in preschool, but she was a first through third grade teacher. So that was something that, you know, she got a lot of pushback for from administration, from parents, but we were able to show, no, we're working on actual skills. These are things that they need. So um, right. it, it can be done, you know, and 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 it was something that I was able to really back her up with, with some good social, social learning resources and, um, you know, evidence. Yeah, because
1: resources. again, you know, even at third grade, you know we didn't get it in kindergarten we didn't get it in preschool most likely for those with down syndrome because they may not have been in a place where they could have learned that then and so we also you know have to remember like okay they're gonna be they're they're late and they actually really love engaging in things they're already good at right yes. so we're so quick to move like okay master it go on But careful, because I've seen that come back over and over again, and then we lose that skill because maybe we didn't stay long enough, but they also are not used to doing well. And so being a master at something is something that can be extremely empowering for them as they become learners. You know, they're not going to master it at third grade and we're done. It has to keep going.
0: I really love just how holistically you look at our our kids with down syndrome. You know, I I never even thought of that, of they're not good at things and they're used to not being good at things and just how, how rough that is for their self-esteem as you said that. And I thought, man, okay, that's definitely an area that I can, I can work on. You know, it's not always working on things all the time that are going to be Hard and difficult for them, you know. It's right. uh, and it makes sense, right? Like, I don't want to go to calculus class. I don't <laughs> do that.
1: <laughs> right, and you know that's kind of them all day. You know, but you really want to sit there and do the thing that's hardest for you all the time? No, I would act up too. And so <laughs> I, that's kind of an exercise I run through. Like, okay, if that was me, I probably would have slapped that kid too. Or you know, <laughs> what you're thinking? I mean, these are those bad behaviors, but. I would probably act out, especially at that age, just because I knew in my own head that the outcome was bad or I'm wrong about my thought about the outcome, but you need to teach it to me in a way that's interesting to me. Yeah. right. (laughs) If it's not interesting to me, I'm really not gonna pay attention. That's human nature, that's all of us, right? That's why worksheets don't work. Right. You know, use real pictures, use pictures of him, his stuff his family members, his dog, make your own books and things like that, where he can make sure to use music all the time. <laughs> what does he love? Use it. And I'm sure all the other kids love things that are similar. So you can sort of incorporate that. So even just one correspondence with the parent, and this is the first thing I do with a new client is what does he like? What foods does he like? What games, what movies, what TV shows, anything. And then I use those from the get go and and I try not to use disconnected information. And that's harder in schools,
0: yeah. but it's definitely you know, possible. It is. Shannon Rebeckes, she was on the podcast several episodes ago, and she works primarily with middle school students, and she does an expert of the week. So, you know, they work on... Tommy wants to talk about spiders and everything spiders, so they'll do spiders that week. Yes. And then Susie is really into the solar system, They'll do solar system that week. And I think that oh, that's really that. brilliant because you're working on peer relationships. Yes. You're working on finding out seeing maybe
1: another that. person's view. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, and you're working on, oh, I love solar systems too. How fascinating. Did you know this? So, anyway, that's, I think, one way that she does it that I think is so, so great.
1: I love that. I love that. I'm yeah. going
0: to it. <laughs> yeah. I know. Exactly. And she has them at the beginning of the year. And of course, like they would talk about what are good topics, what are not good topics, you know, we're not, we're not going to choose things that are not appropriate or that there's not a lot of information about, you know, somebody wants to do Skittles for a theme. Okay. Well, how are we going to do that? Let's problem solve that, which I think is so brilliant. Yes. I digress, but, but I think it can be done. And I love that idea of just really including kids interests, which makes sense, right? We don't listen to podcast episodes or things that, don't interest us so if we as adults don't do that why would we expect a child to do that and to make progress on those things too right
1: Right. and that can be tough for teachers too because gosh you know I have to teach this content right not everything can be what they want and you know that is true too but if you're looking at a unique learner there's going to have to be some things that are modified within the curriculum right because that's the other big complaint i hear all the time where it wasn't modified um and i always think well gosh how how are they supposed to know this when we don't really understand what modified means for someone with down syndrome i think that's the other missing piece and so those are answers i don't have that i know a lot of school slps are much better equipped to do those types of things and i just I really hate seeing this rift between parents and therapists in the schools because it's more of even on the parent side of just, you know, well, they're not doing this, they're not doing this, and they're not doing this. And a lot of time in my head, I'm like, but they have 80 or 90 kids, how in the world, how can we make this easier for them to know how a person with Down syndrome, you know, thinks and learns when they have a bunch of other students with other disorders on their caseload. And so I worry that (laughs) that, mentality is kind of keeping us back in a way Mm -hmm. and that's why we really need to start talking about dosage and having speech not being one location or one therapist but many because speech is cognition this is not simple this is extremely it's probably the most complex thing on the planet really looking at thought and language cognition intelligence can't really take the two and make them separate They are all in the same category. We like to pretend that speech and language are different and can be worked on separately, but it's an intellectual disability and cognition is language, so it's so big that we do need separate specialists, especially when we're thinking about AAC being involved too. We need AAC specialists. We need speech clarity specialists. We need people that can work on that executive functioning piece of language and thought. And it's so big that I think this idea of dosage and this idea of sharing, Hey, we need more than one speech therapist. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> I think we, I know we're not supposed to say that in some schools, right? We're not right. therapists are oftentimes told they can't recommend services outside of the school because you know, it means that they're not doing their job well. And I'm hoping that, that can those conversations can become more common so that we can realize that, hey, this is going to be a long haul. There's a lot that is that has to be worked on here and one therapist can't do it. Probably two can't actually do it to the point where we meet all of our
0: goals. Right, right. Yeah,
1: that's another piece of it. But
0: well i mean i just i've loved our conversation so far what two resources do you have for our listeners when it comes to working with kids with down syndrome
1: so my favorite is the down syndrome education site it is most of the good work that's happening with down syndrome is coming out of the uk sue buckley and her group have down syndrome education and they have really easy fast articles you can read on all of these topics with down syndrome so you can go okay gosh what does she mean by working memory go and read an article she has materials that she sells um, a lot of articles there that you can read that's definitely my favorite and then i'll plug myself quickly and we've started um, another therapist who's a mom and has a child with down syndrome has kind of come to me and say hey let's do this together and i was like yay and so what we're trying to do is we have an instagram page I just out of the facebook page i'm terrible at this stuff she's much better than, than i am emily Kong is her name we've started speech that or down syndrome speech on instagram we have a website but it's terrible it's in the works <laughs> but it's downsyndromespeech.com and so we what we're trying to do is just put a lot of info out there for you With some concrete examples, a lot of it is with the younger kids at this point, but we also are trying to, I'm going to start doing a lot more for teens and adults because that's another group that's being kind of extremely left out of our profession. And so we'll start adding some of that stuff. But what we're hoping to do is, gosh, you know, when I do these, I'm like, wow, I feel like I just steamrolled you. But these are two, I think that you can really kind of get a balance of that research piece. And then how do I apply this? And then look at the people. Obviously you guys all know how Instagram works, but everyone who's liked us is also doing the same thing. And so that learning from each other with parents and SLPs is probably the neatest thing I've seen come out of social media. So, you know, I'm not on Facebook. We'll get on Facebook. At least for the, your professional side of information, there's a lot of great things being done in podcasts and on social media that we can all like grab and do tomorrow.
0: Awesome. I love that. And thank you so much for offering and doing this for free for us on Instagram. I've learned so much on Instagram for so many (laughs) different things. And and the thing that I like about it is I may not take something, it sparks my interest of, oh, I want to learn more about that. Oh, I need to dive deeper in that, you know? And so, so I really appreciate that space for that. And just, I appreciate that you and the other mom have created this, this platform or not the platform itself, but you are using the platform and giving us free education. I mean, that's, that's huge. And so needed, especially as we have really dived into this conversation or dove into this conversation in your previous courses, it's down syndrome, isn't just an intellectual disability. No, it really does need its own set of framework for therapy and things to do and to engage with, with our our clients or our students with Down syndrome. Um, And so I really appreciated the light that you've brought to this population outside of, you know, the only, before you, the only thing that I really know of was talk tools. That was it. Right. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't really, that's another conversation. So and it's I, all
1: a piece of that huge puzzle. Yeah.
0: But it's not, it's not as holistic as the information that you've brought forth. So I just really appreciate that. All right. Our last question, what actionable strategy can we start doing tomorrow?
1: Oh man, there's so many. And it's funny cause <laughs> I'll go through like my own little like bouts where I'm like, this is the only thing I need to ever do and then i remember that that's not true <laughs> you know if, i feel bad because if you've listened to me before you've already heard this but probably personal books okay or autobiographical books i mean i can't tell you how much i've used this i'll give you two and i'm gonna break the rules so personal books and video modeling are probably the two most powerful tools where you can i'm not kidding you see a difference in five minutes in personal books, meaning when I tell parents about this original, there's ten thousand ways you can do this. But a very quick way to do it is to grab baby pictures, any family pictures whatsoever, and you know start naming people in the pictures. Make your own books where it's just one word or a phrase per page per picture. You can do them by category. You can do you know my toys, routines during the day, snack time, dinner time, where you're. It's basically AAC. But what you're gonna do is you're gonna build in reading, which our kids are very good at. I didn't talk about that today. We can read at very young ages, sometimes even self-taught. So using print, which obviously even at very young ages, is gonna help with school, right? So personal books and then video modeling, because we think and learn visually, and you can tell when kids are trying to remember or when they're bored. You can almost hear autism, too, but you can see, oh, gosh, they're singing a song right now in their head from the movie that we watched last night or whatever. So some neat video modeling stuff is out there on the Internet, too, that I've talked about. But taking a quick video of them at the zoo, watching it back together, talking about that video or whatever they're doing in that video, the research says. I guess a better example would be than the zoo would be. poppy kids is one I use all the time. So you take a video of them eating something well one day. They're in a great appetite. They normally don't have a good appetite. Take a quick video of them eating that. Rewatch it again, maybe several times with them. They love to watch themselves any video, but really of themselves even a bit more. And the research says there's a latency effect. <laughs> they may eat better in 14 hours from now, simply from watching that one video of them eating that food in the past. And so you can <laughs> take that 10 billion different directions. There's companies out there that are doing this, but it doesn't have to be something that you purchase. This can be done with all of the cameras or all of the videos on your phone, all the pictures on your phone. You can do it right now and then watch it together later. That playback, that teaching, Hey, look at me, that's what I did. Or even if it wasn't great, like, oh man. We put the shoe on the wrong foot, you know, over here and then we do it better. They're more likely to put the shoe on the right foot the next time watching that video. So there's some really neat stuff happening with those two things. And with a phone in your pocket, you can do both very quickly and vaguely.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I you know, I was thinking when you first said video modeling, not videos of themselves. And so I really love that idea of video modeling. You know, if they're at lunchtime, um, having an aide take a quick video. Of course, we need to make sure. all the
1: paperwork, yes.
0: Yeah, of course, we need to make sure we have consent for all of those things, but having the classroom teacher or the classroom aide take videos of them in class, having the classroom aide take videos of them while they're in APE, having... Sending them home to mom. Yeah, and then also asking parents, you know, hey, can you send a video? And I mean, we could totally, as I'm brainstorming and thinking of things, it's fun when they're the expert of the week and they're talking about their spiders or their their thing. And maybe mom can share a video and, hey, we're going to talk about this video or this thing that they did.
1: And it's not only their interest that peaks, but their vocabulary comes out. And it's been so surprising to see that because I really wasn't a passive learner type of therapist and you know I kind of go back and forth but I've done this and been shocked almost every time that they just start talking about it <laughs> or a child can read and we didn't know they could read because we just never thought about it and so you will see skills emerge and so if you can share I know there's all these legal things and people complain about that but that's a brilliant way to kind of make that bridge hey here's what we said Evans, at school There's what we see at home. And now you both see it together. And a lot of wonderful things (laughs) can come out of that on three different fronts. And so, yeah, and it's simple. We have phones in our pockets all the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. We do have a question from Marianne. She asks if you have any examples of visual or other tools you use to work on speech clarity or other areas. She was thinking about using pacing boards with fun visuals as an example.
1: Exactly. So pacing boards are kind of the number one thing we use when they're little. It's at like a pre AAC, but also remember reading is a pacing board. So you know, say I am hungry. That's one of the first books I'll do when I show um, examples of this in the courses. But it's you know that child sitting at the table eating. I am hungry. A child drinking. I am thirsty. They'll see their things, and we can use words as pacing boards. And that's where this reading piece can really be extremely powerful, because even if now I'm not talking about comprehension, I'm talking about reading for speech. So as a pacing board, the child that we could only get one or two words out of spontaneously suddenly can read a four to five word sentence. Now I'm not saying they can duplicate it right away, but they're doing a motor act they've never done before. And now we're getting that feeling of talking in longer utterances. And now we're working on working memory too, right? So all of these things are starting to happen, and you can almost get instantaneous speech in in words and lengths of utterance you never would have had before. And so these are strategies. <laughs> They're not going to bleed over to perfect everything, but yeah, that's a definite start with those pacing boards. That those are by Libby Kubin, and then modify them as the child grows, and then we kind of you know we kind of fade them like everything else. But yes, that's the quickest way to work on MLU at least in the early, I'm not sure if that was exactly the question, if I missed it. I got excited about the pacing board part.
0: Awesome, we have another question. Do you have any suggestions on therapy strategies for improving receptive and expressive language skills for early elementary students with Down syndrome and severe intellectual disability who are nonverbal at this time?
1: (sighs) Nonverbal. Oh, and probably you probably have to go towards more of your aac type stuff for a non-verbal child but anything meaningful to them really i think music is another piece that we all kind of join together in but it would depend on what your ultimate goal is for that receptive and expressive language and how impacted both are and how they're interacting with each other. So if we're looking at Down syndrome as though everybody was the exact same with Down syndrome, which obviously is not true, but if we pretend for a second that it is true, we would know that receptive is easier. So I would downplay that and I would upplay using that language. Okay, so where we're looking at a book, we're looking at a picture that she brought or something that was brought from home, because I'm still kind of playing on your idea of that. um, You're the teacher part how and what would make that child willing and excited to interact back at you. And I think that that's what we would have to choose. The nonverbal piece, I really don't necessarily believe except for in really specific circumstances that children with Down syndrome should be nonverbal. If that's what we're looking at, we probably need to really look at using your voice, using your voice, using your voice. And that might just be, ah, just initiating voice so that we can kind of get to that speech piece. If that's your goal, if we're dealing with something much more severe and speech is not something we think is possible, then you're gonna have to look at other avenues for expression. But if we think, gosh, maybe we just haven't had the opportunity in the past using some kind of voice strategies, and I know LSVT was mentioned in my bio, but that's a kind of for a later, Topic, but there are some things about just simply turning on your voice. People with Down syndrome have to work twice as hard, meaning they have to put twice the amount of effort, physical effort, into voicing than we do, just because of that dysarthria and hypotonia. So, so that's a big question that would I need a lot more information to really actually be able to answer it well. So, I'm not sure if that helped, but
0: thank you. I, you know, I you brought up things that were still good to think about and still some. Some pieces to to think about, especially when it comes to nonverbal and verbal, and how to go about that. So I appreciate that, and I just appreciate you, Jennifer. I really just love how you conceptualize our students with Down syndrome, and how you have really practical skills and practical things to to relate to us, practical strategies that we can start using tomorrow, and even just shifting our own mindset about how to think about our kids with down syndrome will really just make a huge difference so i appreciate you i appreciate you spending this time with us just as a reminder to everyone else if you do want that handout please email me at this.speech.life at gmail.com and if you ever have any questions about the podcast or have any requests for possible guests feel free to pop that in there too
1: and you can have
0: my email I don't know if it's on there I might want to go ahead and just share it for us that would be great
1: so it's jennifer at grayspeaktherapy.com and then you can find me on Facebook and Instagram also so if you have questions I love questions (laughs) if I, I really wish that's all I would do I could make a living off of that but I can't but I will respond and kind of point you to directions if you have more in-depth questions that we need to today. So thank you.
0: All right, thank you so much, Jennifer, for making yourself available and for sharing your Instagram as well. That will be really helpful. Everyone else, thank you for joining us for this hour and we will catch you next time. Just a reminder to log into your course portal and complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz. All right, everyone, see you soon. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.